If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, we are going to be talking about definitively measuring your impact with Alan Mackey. Before we jump into that conversation, I just have to say, since we're all thinking about 2021 right now, if you're thinking about your board and you're thinking about how you measure your board's impact, please reach out to me. The first quarter of the year is always a good time for us to be thinking about board development and board retreats. So reach out if you're thinking about how your board can get stronger in 2021. But as I said, today we are talking about measuring your organization's impact with Alan Mackey. Alan is an attorney who actually started off evaluating the impact of legislation on criminal justice in Britain's home office, which is kind of like our Department of Justice here in the United States. He was there about a dozen years before rolling out into the private sector, where he expanded. He continued to help measure impact in areas of criminal justice, but then expanded to education, healthcare, and other public service, public sector, nonprofit organizations. I will share with you that one of the things I have really admired as I've been following his blog is the way that he breaks things down and he makes what seems really complex pretty simple. And I have to say that is a gift and it's a talent. And it's one of the many reasons why I wanted to make sure that we had Alan on the podcast. Hey, Alan, welcome. Hi. Hi, Dolph. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Same here. And I thought where we might start is, I know there's a case study that you've been talking about recently uh, about Gideon's promise. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. I'm delighted to. Gideon's Promise is a, an organization, a nonprofit based here in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, it was founded by Jonathan Rapping and his partner, Ilamaskia. And um, they 
train and support public defenders to put the client at the center of the public defender practice. Um, so they're an awesome organization. They work um, across the south of the United States and the Midwest. And their goal isn't just to make attorneys be better advocates on behalf of their clients. They really want to transform uh, the criminal justice system here in the States. And they're a wonderful organization. And I think as I read your case study on that, I think Gideon's Promise had sort of an unusual type of outcome they wanted to track. Not your typical, like, how many are convicted, how many are not convicted. Yeah, absolutely right. And I remember my first meeting with them, um, I, I and my colleague Jack Cattell uh, turned up and I was trying to understand, you know, what, what was the impact they wanted to make? And um, I kept saying uh, to them, you know, is it less severe sentences? Is it increase in acquittals? And Jonathan Rapping, he got a little bit frustrated and he said, well, you know, if you don't get it, you can leave the meeting now. And I said, well, you know, hang on, you know, be patient, you know, we'll get it. But what they wanted to to measure was really the client experience. Did the client feel that they had been put at the center of their defender's attention? Uh, Was their story being told? Was, Was their case being investigated? The concern of Gideon's promise is that often public defenders um, just sort of take a case and, and agree a plea and the client's not really involved. You know, they're often the most vulnerable people in our society, without means, without a voice, often marginalised. So this was very important. So what we understood working with John and colleagues was really what was important to uh, public defenders, what they were trying to achieve. So that was a very good starting point for any nonprofit. You know, what are you trying to achieve? What's important to you? Even if you think that's difficult to measure, if we begin to understand what you're trying to do, we'll come up with the measures. So what we did was we devised two uh, measurements. One was called the Defend, or it is called the Defender Values Spectrum Survey. It's a questionnaire, really, and we test with different public defenders who've been trained and supported by Gideon's Promise, the extent to which they feel they're putting uh, their client at the centre of their practice. So we'll ask them questions about how well they think they advocate on behalf of their client, how well they investigate, how well they've been able to take their client's instructions and really put their client at the centre. And then we also have a client experience survey. And this is This isn't a customer satisfaction survey, it's a little more detailed, but we try and understand from the client's point of view that they really feel that their story had been heard, no matter what the outcome. I mean, so often the the system's rigged against these defendants. Um, They come in and there's a presumption of guilt upon them when they walk in the court court door. Um, So, you know, they know that's the case, but do they feel, even if they're being sent to prison, even if they're being found convicted, do they feel that someone had stood up for them in court? And I think that's very important. Uh, Gideon's Promise feel that's very important. And we find the clients also feel that that's very important. So this was a really exciting project to be involved in. It's still going on. Uh, We did the feasibility study. We tested our instruments. And we're just set um, when the funding comes to roll this out. for me, it was transformative because it, it got me away from, as you said, I was an attorney. I worked for the British government. So often it was just, you know, 
surely the measure of success is we got this guy off, or surely the measure of success is he didn't get a jail sentence. But this was something different, and this was something more important. And I will say, part of what I love about Gideon's Promises decision to focus on how the defendant felt about their defender and not about the outcome is because, as you said, the system is so stacked against people who've been accused of crimes, but also because public defenders have such a larger caseload than the prosecutors that are working for the DA's office. And so a prosecutor often has two or three times the amount of hours to prosecute a case than a public defender does to defend it. And so consequently, I could totally see how a lot of public defenders start to sort of become a mill, like, okay, I got 45 minutes with you. Let's get this done. All right, you're in, you're out. And the impact that has on the client. So I love the fact that they were looking at this non-traditional outcome to be evaluating. Yeah. And it really, looking back at my early part of my career when I was an attorney and representing people in court, I mean, I have to say that I was faced with the same temptations to just get things moving off my plate. Um, It's a very tempting thing. The stresses are there. You've got an almost overwhelming caseload. And so the, the temptation just to process it is very strong. I think the other aspect of what we looked at in our questionnaire with the public defenders was um, really their empathy. Um, We obviously didn't want cold-hearted people who didn't care. Uh, So we wanted to measure the public defender's empathy, whether they had effective empathy. So that might be uh, that they would take all the worries of the client upon them and, and, and not establish those boundaries. And that could lead to burning out if you've got an overwhelming caseload. Um, There's nothing wrong with that, uh, but it's just something to be aware of. And then to have a a more sort of directive empathy where you could, or cognitive empathy, where you could understand but direct. So you you were establishing appropriate boundaries that terrible though the circumstances of your client in front of you might be, the best thing you can do is just have that ability to direct them on to the next thing, to take them with you in the investigation. So this may sound like an ignorant question, but how did you develop a tool to determine empathy among public defenders? There's a basic empathy score, which has been validated and uh, is widely used. So we worked with an academic in England, Professor Derek Jolliffe, and he had helped devise this score for criminal justice personnel. So we, we used it and we've used it here. It was the third part of our public defender uh, questionnaire. So the first and second parts, we really, from understanding what Gideon's Promise wanted to do, so we started building a logic model. We started understanding what we call our theory of change. So that's everything about, well, if you get these public defenders and you train them in client-centered approach, uh, and these are the outcomes, how does that all fit together as a series of logical inferences. And that's something we would do with any client. So understanding the inputs, what are the training, the resources, the support you're putting in, how many people are taking up this training, what are you expecting of them, and then the intended outcomes. So once we had done that, then we could identify the areas that Gideon's Promise wanted to impact on their public defender's practice. And then we developed 
a suite of questions that really unpacked that. Once we had done that, we then went to the public defenders and tested that out on them to make sure that made sense. And then we collected a sample and then we did something that we call validity and reliability testing to ensure that we were measuring what we wanted to measure and that the uh, questionnaires could be used reliably. So, you know, rather like a thermometer will always, if it's properly calibrated, will always measure freezing point or measure boiling point. So we did that. And so we're very confident that the tools that we've developed are valid, um, that they're reliable and, you know, will withstand peer review or scrutiny by any skeptics. That's awesome. Now, I know a lot of organizations that are hesitant to start outcome evaluation projects because they're worried about the data collection piece. They say to themselves, our case managers, our healthcare providers, whoever is collecting the data, they're already so busy, they're already feeling overwhelmed, we cannot ask them to collect more data. So how can nonprofit organizations collect that data in a way that allows people to do it without ripping their clothes and gnashing their teeth and cussing under their breath? Yeah. Well, I'll let you into a little secret, Dolph. I'm the least numerate person in the room. I always reassure people of that, that, you know, data is important, but you don't need to be a statistician to handle data. There's two questions there. One is a fear of data. And I think in our society, you know, people are anxious about their numeracy skills. People are anxious about spreadsheets and they become overwhelmed. And that's why I think developing a theory of change or a logic model is very important. Theory of change sounds rather grand. So let me just call that the story of how you want to affect the change you desire. Uh, And that's simply storytelling. And I love doing that piece of the work. I love sort of reading about an organization, interviewing its staff, its board members, its beneficiaries, and really understanding what is it that you want to do and what are the resources you have to achieve that. And that's simply the story. And that's a theory of change. Can you tell us one of those stories that's a theory of change that you've worked on? Yeah. Let's go back to Gideon's Promise, since we've been talking about that. Their theory of change was that they want to transform the criminal justice system. So it goes beyond the public defenders, but they see the public defenders as being an agent of change. So when you have robust public defenders, they're going to start to change the culture in the court. They're going to start putting the district attorney on notice that they're going to be a bit more robust. So the district attorney has to kind of wise up. And they're also putting the the judges and the sentencers on notice that they're not going to be a pushover. And that the people that they represent are not men and women in orange jumpsuits. They're humans. They're mothers, they're brothers, they're sons and daughters, the valued members of the community. And from that, uh, you begin to change how the public perceive criminals. Most criminals um, do fairly silly, but ordinary things. They're not the super predators that we're taught that they are. And so we begin to change society and we begin to change what society expects. So that's what we heard from John Rapping and his colleagues. So we began to think, okay, let's unpack this. We'll probably never be able to measure the impact on society of Gideon's promise. 
we might be able in time to devise measurements on how the sentencers change and how the DAs change. And that's something I'd love to do in the pipeline. The bit that we can manage, the bit where we can affect change is really on the public defenders. So how do we do that? So your resources are, you have this wonderful organization, Gideon's Promise, it provides training, it provides mentoring, it provides support. You run the program for three years. Um, so you've got a really good chance of starting to change the practice of public defenders to make them client orientated. And that's where you can begin to affect change. So although you've got this really ambitious mission to uh, change society, quite rightly so, the bit that you can affect the change is really what are your resources? Who's coming to your training? What training are they receiving? And then the, the, the bit for me, the magic bit is, well, let's see what impact you're having. So let me ask you, these public defenders who are already have a much higher caseload than they possibly can are now being asked to complete these scales of empathy, et cetera. How do you convince them that it's worth their time to do that? We do a census point. So everyone who comes onto the program, so someone who has just recently got through the bar exam and has been um, employed as a public defender and admitted onto Gideon's Promise before they join their three-year training course, we do a baseline form. And then every year, uh, we ask them to complete the form. So we begin to, to trace them. Everyone else who's done the training um, or is in any position uh, within the public defender organization who's involved with Gideon's Promise will also be an annual census. Um, so that's useful. It's a convincing people to do that's a value thing. If they really feel committed to changing their practice and putting the client at the, the center, it's the, the least that we can ask them. It'd be 15 minutes to complete the form um, at most, uh, but we do it once a year. With the clients, asking them to complete the form was difficult, uh, and that remains a challenge. And, and there were practical challenges, the point at which we would ask a client to report how they felt. You know, uh, we looked at different ways. Do we do it at court? But that's a very busy time for them. There's so much happening. Do we do it after the event? Well, so many of them can be transient and they move on. They might have a burn phone, you know, um, so trying to locate them. That was challenging, but we were really committed. We felt that if the people who were benefiting from the client-centered approach, it was so almost in integral that we should make every attempt to ask them. So we aim for a large sample. We probably get less than we had hoped, but it's a, it's a suitable sample in which we can begin to look at the effect of the client-centered approach on these people. I often think that people can put up obstacles. They can say, well, is it ethical? You know, we don't want to bother people. But I think you've got to look at, well, what's important to you? You know, what is it you want to measure? And I have to say, when we were testing instruments um, with individuals, they wanted to tell their story again. They wanted to say, this public defender really put me at the centre of the practice, or they didn't. And I think that's important. So I think often when we worry about the time or the ethics of it all, uh, we're often excluding people again. And we're just saying that's not important to them. So one of the things I think I hear you saying is 
you help develop an evaluation tool that actually feeds into Gideon Promise's theory of change because it helps the client feel valued again. Yes, yes. That's really awesome. The, the client is central to everything that Gideon's Promise thinks important. How could you be concerned if about how the client felt in court, but you didn't ever ask them, is what we think is good for you, good for you? Are these things that we think important about client-centered practice, are they really important to you? It's like those strategic planning projects where you never talk to a client and find out what they think about it. Exactly. And I think that it probably other listeners, and this is beyond Gideon's promise, and this is beyond the criminal justice system. So you might be in a housing nonprofit or a health nonprofit or an education nonprofit. But I, I hope that this is resonating with your listeners. They think the people they're trying to help are so important. So how can we not only give a voice to those people, but measure what is important to them. Not particularly what's important to your board or to your funder. Measure what's important to the people you're trying to help. So that is a great segue into how you make the complex simple and how you communicate it, especially if what you have is data that your board or your funders aren't really that interested in. Oh, gosh. You know, so much of my practice for the government, we would have great data collection exercises. We would do wonderful analyses. We would evaluate a government program from top to bottom, inside out, and nothing. It was like crickets. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of look back at my 25 years and think, I wonder what difference I made, you know, uh, doing government research. I think the key is, you know, what Gideon's Promise really taught me and what working increasingly with nonprofits and less with government, what it really is teaching me is that nonprofits know what's important. So going back to what we're talking about, you articulate your theory of change. You tell me what the impact you want to make and what's important to you. And you tell me the resources that you have at your disposal and how you're going to bring about your desired change. I'll scratch my head and I'll think, well, you know, we've got to do a little bit of monitoring. We've got to make sure that your resources are being applied in the right way, that you've got, you know, if you're training people or if you're running a clinic, we need to make sure that that's well resourced and that the people who provide the resources or giving them to you and that they're arranged in the right way. And that's just a good bit of housekeeping. And generally, the data are there, you know, because most nonprofits will have some management data and will use that. They do, we're not very seldom ask people to reproduce data. And then we'll scratch our head a bit and say, well, you know, what is it that's important to you? Now, it might be that you have a number of things that are important. It might be that you want to understand how your clients think about the service, but it also might be about the difference that you're making. You know, how many people do you get into a house? How many people do you get through your healthcare improvements in their health or improvements in their well-being? And often 
For those, there'll be data that we can use. We call those secondary data. They're there uh, and we can use them. So if you're looking at well-being, there's some well-established well-being tools. So that's thinking about how people are relating to themselves and society after maybe having their education sorted out for them or their career or employment. There's lots of ways we can do it, but it's really understanding what's important to you. I'm thinking actually of another client, the International Rescue Committee, and we're just completing a four-year evaluation with them. And I remember when I first met them, I said, you know, what's the outcome? And they said, well, it's getting people into employment. And I said, typically it's employment. And they said, it's the chicken factory in Gainesville. And I said, hmm, that doesn't sound like the best employment, but it's a job. And I said to them, but you're a humanitarian organization. Do you measure how your clients feel about themselves? You know, are they, they've come from a place of potential harm and they're here in uh, metro Atlanta, in a place of relative safety. But they had hopes and expectations in Africa or Asia or wherever they came from. You've got them a job, but that's not the end of the story. So in our evaluation of one of the resettlement programs, we implemented the Cantrell scale. And that's a, a very simple well-being tool, which kind of measures whether people are thriving, whether they're struggling or whether they're suffering. And it's a very easy tool to do. And that's important. And the IRC said, yeah, that's really important. It's the job and income, of course, is vital. But we need to understand, does someone feel there's something beyond the chicken factory? Is there a way in which they feel they could begin to thrive in their new home, that they could maybe pick up what they had hoped to do when they were back in Africa? You had mentioned... At this point, a few validated scales that organizations use. How does an organization find those scales if they want to measure empathy or thriving or anything else? One of the very simple ones, and uh, the Cantrell scale, and you could just look at Gallup and find that. It's a very simple 10, it's a ladder scale, 10 steps of the ladder, and you just ask someone to pinpoint on the ladder how they're feeling. And then where they've identified that is they're either suffering, struggling, or thriving. So it's very simple. The empathy skill, the best empathy skill, is, is just widely available. You can use that. There are other ones that we would perhaps go and look to. I'm not saying that you would need professional support to find them, but again, it's all about understanding what a well-being tool is trying to measure and making sure there's a good fit. And so not always just taking things off the shelf and applying them without kind of understanding how they were created, what they're intending to measure, and how they can be used properly. But I think the, the Cantrell scale for an organization who thinks that's appropriate, it, it's, it's one Gallup use. It's great for people. There's very little language barriers to overcome, and there's very little sort of cognitive ability to to overcome. It's just very straightforward. That's awesome. And we can post that in our show notes and we'll follow up with you as well and get the empathy scale, a link to that that you mentioned that's widely available, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be very interested to see those. Well, Alan, we are rapidly approaching 30 minutes and I got to ask you an off-the-map question. A lot of our listeners probably were in 
their high school band or marching band. And I understand that in your school band, you played an instrument that probably most of our, our listeners have never played. Yes. And it wasn't the trumpet. It was the Great Highland Bagpipe. I went to a school in Edinburgh many, many years ago. The principal wanted uh, to have a pipe band. And now, 40 years later, the pipe band that they have is a renowned pipe band that wins lots and lots of prizes. But I was one of four boys. We were all boys at those, in those days. And uh, we were selected to learn the bagpipes. And um, so it was a, a great thing. It's a great party piece to have. Uh, I wasn't a great band member in kind of marching up and down or standing in a semicircle with the other three boys. Uh, yeah, if I have my bagpipes, um, you get invited to weddings and <laughs> I get to play. Um, here, stateside, the pipes are over in Scotland, but here I do have my little practice instrument and I just practice my skills and my uh, tunes. And um, yeah, it's, it's great. That's really interesting. And you mentioned that you were selected. Does that mean that you competed and were selected? Or does that mean someone just said, you, you're going to play the bagpipes? It was the latter. Yes. <laughs> I, I think I, I'd started to play them actually, thinking back, I played in a little equivalent to the Scouts in Scotland, and they had a little band and it was all about the same time. Uh, and someone heard that I was learning. So I and three other boys were selected. The occasion was actually the Queen was coming to visit our school and the principal wanted her to receive a great Scottish welcome. So we stood at the gate and we played. So wait a minute. So, so this means you played for Queen Elizabeth? I did. Wow. I did. Yes. And we were told, and this is true, I believe, that she is quite a discerning listener of the bagpipes. I believe every morning she's woken up by a piper. So she knows her stuff. So we had to be good. I have to ask you another question now because I did not know about this and I'm going to have to Google this. Wait a minute. She's woken up by a piper every morning. Does that mean the person is like outside below her window or is the person in her room? When I was living in London, I knew her personal piper and he used to have to get up quite early in the morning and he would walk up and down the garden Buckingham Palace, I guess, and play a tune. And the Queen, <laughs> sounds really s silly, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know if the president, is the president woken up by bagpipes? I don't know. I have so many questions, but I just have to ask this one. Is that a full-time job for your friend, being the, the palace bagpiper? <laughs> he was an army piper, so he piped in the army. And when he was stationed in London, he would, go from the barracks early in the morning and play before breakfast. I could see that, but I was just well, I was just thinking, what a cushy job. You know, your your day is over by 6.45, but if he's in the Army, his day was not over at 6.45. All right. Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing so much good information about evaluation and also, frankly, about the bagpipes. I have I learned things I did not know about the bagpipes. Now, listeners, if you want to reach out to Alan, here's his URL, getthedata.co.uk. His firm works on both sides of the Atlantic, in the United Kingdom and in the United States. So don't worry about the fact that it's a UK URL. 
getthedata.co.uk. When you are there, in addition to reaching out to him, there are two other things I want to make sure you check out. The first is check out the blog and one specific article entitled something like Influencing Through Data. And that article will help you understand how to explain your data to people who are skeptical about the veracity of your data. The other thing I want you to check out while you are there are their webinars. Every quarter they do a webinar, so make sure you click on the webinar link and you can register for an upcoming webinar or even watch and review a prior webinar. So, Alan, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure, Adolf. It really has. All right, listeners, if you are just Googling the Palace Bagpiper and so we're not able to write down Alan's URL, that's okay. Just go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We're going to have the URL for his firm. We are going to link to that blog post article that I mentioned, and we are also going to link to his LinkedIn page and his Twitter feed. And don't forget, listeners, as we're moving into 2021, if you're thinking about some board development work, go over to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and reach out to me. We would love to partner with you on strengthening your board. Before we close, you all know I love to read reviews, the good, the bad, the in-between. I love the reviews of the podcast. And we've had a few over the last month or so. And I wanted to read one from Josh. He said, whether you're well-established as someone who can translate creative energy into the impact you want to have on the world or just getting started as a catalyst for change, this is a must-listen podcast for you. Highly recommend listening and subscribing. Josh, thank you so much for the review. I am grateful you are helping other people find our podcast and get this resource. So listeners, please pick up your phone, write a review. I appreciate it. And again, you will help other people find out about our podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this conversation with Alan Mackey, you should absolutely go back and listen to episode three, Measuring Outcomes, with Karam Hassan. Quick note, though, episode three is not available on the stream on your phone. We've removed probably about 50 or 60 of the first episodes because the audio quality is no longer up to what we find acceptable from the stream. But you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and still play that episode. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And just a quick reminder that I am not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. And let me give you a secret. If that's what you need, you should find a qualified, licensed professional and talk to them.